Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, episode 83, recorded in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. It is your bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and for those of you who are dedicated listeners, you may notice we're going without the standard introduction. Uh, The Big Gino, our producer, had a bit of a technical disaster, and we can't do our normal bumper. So we're following that up with the technical disaster that is me playing sound engineer. Wish me luck, everyone. Now, last week we talked with Matthias Polborn, who discussed the role gerrymandering plays in political polarization. And this week, I spoke with Walter Olson, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, who was recently appointed by Maryland's Governor Larry Hogan to sit on the state's redistricting commission. And the goal was to take one of the country's most heavily gerrymandered states and make it less so. And in our conversation, we discussed some of the ways they're tackling the issue of nonpartisan redistricting, how the solutions to gerrymandering are often as varied as the states themselves, and we also get a chance to make fun of some preposterously shaped districts in the process, which was loads of fun. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Walter, the the reason I was so eager to speak with you is is obviously the work you've done and the work you're doing uh, with uh, redistricting in Maryland. And one of the things we've been talking a lot uh, about a lot uh, on this podcast recently is uh, gerrymandering and kind of the role that plays in the tone of politics today. And I, I want to get to that a little later on. Um, but to, to kick things off, you know, in reading I've done in the past, uh, Maryland always comes up as a as one of the states that is more heavily gerrymandered in the union. And I actually heard I heard one guy refer to one district in Maryland, I believe, as a tentacled horror was the word he used. So how well-earned is is that reputation, would you say? As far as U.S. House of Representatives seats, Maryland has really the worst gerrymander in the country. And for years, it was kind of a neck-and-neck race between Maryland and North Carolina, which had the worst. And then a couple of court decisions struck down the North Carolina maps, leaving Maryland kind of undisputed as king of the hill uh, for having the the worst house districts. And uh, the description you heard is probably one of the descriptions of the third district, mm-hmm. uh, probably the worst district in the country, which has been compared by a federal judge and others to a broken winged pterodactyl, okay. uh, to a praying mantis. Uh, and my favorite of these is to the uh, blood spatters at a crime scene. Okay. Okay. Broken wing pterodactyl. That actually, the, up until then, the most creative district named I heard was Donald Kicking Goofy. That was a great name. And once you, you see the image, you can never forget it in that district. But, <laughs> uh, I, but I have Maryland pride. That was a Pennsylvania district. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, to get back to our third uh, congressional district, uh, uh, a group, a reform group, did a so-called gerrymander meander, which was a an event uh, intended to call attention to how bad it was by trying to uh, go uh, from one when one end of the third district to another uh, without entering any other district. And 
multiple forms of conveyance were needed because cars would not do it. At one point, you had to get into a boat and row or, or uh, uh, otherwise get from one part of the Chesapeake Bay to another because it had only, this is what we, we redistricting nerds call water contiguity. Uh, it uh, is one contiguous district, but only if you go across water. So that exists. Uh, yes. Now, of course, you need water contiguity if you're islands like Hawaii, but yeah. Maryland doesn't really need that. It was just a completely artificial mechanism for linking two areas that they wanted to. Oh my! Yeah. yeah, don't don't let the folks in Massachusetts figure that one out because we could go nuts with that one. Um, now, you you were part of the Maryland Redistricting Commission back in 2015, and what was that experience like? Well, we've actually had three uh, redistricting commissions under Laurie Hogan. So let me start with the beginning because each of the three was different. Okay. Um, Hogan was elected in 2014 with the Maryland gerrymander as one of his big issues. He really campaigned on it. Uh, and one politically understandable reason for that is that uh, it's a more or less unanimous uh, subject for everyone who was not part of the gerrymander, 70% or so, including uh, really the same support among Democrats, Republicans, and okay. in, uh, independents, get rid of the gerrymander, a, a widespread outrage at it. So he campaigned on that. And when he got in, uh, uh, first year he was in office, he acted on those promises by appointing the uh, Maryland Redistricting Reform Commission, which like the subsequent two ones, I've had the honor of being co-chair of. There, in each case, there's been um, a Democrat, Democratic co-chair, and, and for the last two, there's also been an independent uh, uh, co-chair. But uh, the point of that first one, which was something of a blue ribbon commission with people from many well-known groups like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause, NAACP, but the point of that one was to not to draw any lines, but to propose what a better system would be. Uh, what should a uh, citizens commission look like? And of course, citizens commissions have come in in a bunch of states, mostly Western states, as a uh, change up from the old um, uh, practice of letting the legislators themselves decide, letting the state legislature decide, which is how historically it's been done. Um, so um, Governor Hogan gave us that commission. What would the best possible system look like, bearing in mind both the special conditions of Maryland, which is a geographically small state that is very used to face-to-face -face politics. Unlike California, um, Maryland is really used to people having met their representatives. It, it's a small enough state that, that can happen. And, uh, and also trying to learn from the good and the bad of citizen commissions in states like Arizona and California. And um, you, California, a huge state, almost has to do things differently, but it also has money to burn to make certain types of things work. Um, and Arizona, which was out there early uh, with the format, uh, ran into some trouble, lots of litigation. Uh, they had the practice of having one person, one independent in the middle as the tiebreaker. And we tried to learn a lesson from that, which is that, that uh, there were attempts to fire that person, there were attempts to sue that person into miserable submission. And so one of the 
lessons we picked up early is don't have just one tiebreaker, have maybe three independents so that it, it's not as easy a target to shoot at. Okay, yeah. So so we we were trying to learn from that early experience of the states that had gone first with independent mm -hmm. commissions, uh, pick up on the best practices, um, make sure it was suitable for our size state and, and our particular political history. And so that was, uh, that commission turned things around and reported back less than six months later. Um, we had a chance to use that uh, those recommendations mm -hmm. uh, about uh, three years later uh, with what was called the emergency six district uh, uh, commission. And that happened because uh, our uh, ridiculous congressional districts were the subject of litigation. And although some of the litigation washed out over the years and eventually it, it went up to the Supreme Court three times and eventually not to get ahead of the story, but they ruled that there was no federal right to sue over partisan gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. But before before they came out with that final verdict, uh, the federal courts um, looked at the sixth district, one of our bad districts, and struck it down and said, uh, you know, this is unconstitutionally partisan. And uh, so at that point, you had a court ruling that the sixth district was illegal. Uh, you didn't yet have a replacement order for what the sixth district should look like. So um, Governor Hogan saw that as a great opportunity. He got appointed a, uh, uh, the chairs of what we then went on and filled out as a citizen commission to say what the sixth district should look like, um, with the idea being present the court with a remedy that had been uh, not only drawn fairly as opposed to unfairly, but it had also been put through public hearings. Um, the people who had it uh, from the affected parts of Western Maryland would have a chance to comment on it. Uh, and one of my favorite parts of the process, not only was there sunshine throughout with our uh, meetings being streamed and lots of different portals for public comment of different sorts, but also a portal for public map submission. And mm -hmm. this is part of what I love about the redistricting um, reform game is that uh, even though uh, big data and computer um, uh, prowess is used by the bad guys to come up with incredibly fine-tuned gerrymandering, uh, the public can strike back with public availability of data uh, cheap or free software programs that you can run from your phone or your desktop and effectively counter-programming where anyone who wants to uh, get one of these programs can submit counter maps, uh, submit fair ones to um, counter, uh, to provide a, a, a clear alternative to the bad unfair ones. And we in fact adopted a publicly submitted map for our six district project. Interesting. Um, if you don't mind my rambling on through one more story about public map submission. Yeah, uh, please. So the story that I, I most love to tell from this field, uh, Pennsylvania is a state that is mostly stuck with pretty bad gerrymandering. Problems. Yeah. But um, for whatever reason, it also um, had enough public uh, data availability that it was possible for the public to submit maps. And so when it wound up in court going to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which has more than once uh, seen gerrymandering cases, which it's decided under its own state uh, law and, and, and state constitution, um, the uh, state house districts, 
the, the not U.S. House, but the, the ones for the Pennsylvania state legislature were done very, very badly or un, unfairly uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, favoring the incumbent party, the Republicans. So a piano teacher from Allentown submitted a map uh, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that it wasn't going to in, uh, order her map into law, but her map was so clearly fairer than the one the legislature had done that it felt emboldened to strike down the legislature's map and told them to go back and do it again. So this is kind of the promise and the fun of uh, public map submission is that uh, it is a really level playing field for everyone who is nerdy enough to want to try this thing in the first place. Uh, a court might find their map to be better. Yeah. So I, that's super interesting. So how do you get agreement on the submitted map? Because obviously in any redistricting commission, there are incentive structures to uh, tilt the map as much in your favor as possible or as much in the favor of your party. How do you reach, how did they figure out or come to an agreement on which publicly submitted map to, to use? Let me take a, a big step back and yeah. talk about um, the different inputs, uh, and I'd put them in three kind of categories. Who gets mm -hmm. to decide okay. um, what map to propose? Mm -hmm. um, what are the ground rules as far as uh, what's uh, the, the specifications of a good district versus a bad district? And finally, what procedural rules do they have to follow in getting there? Uh, and so briefly starting out, uh, first one we've already talked a bit about, which is who gets to decide. And you've got the old format where the state legislature, sometimes with input from the governor, uh, decides uh, super uh, self-interested or conflict of interested, uh, mm -hmm. depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but there are a bunch of other different formats, and you can go all the way to the opposite end of a citizen's commission. Uh, we like to... Um, uh, boast to the fact that unlike some of the um, uh, reform ideas that have come in through um, uh, state initiatives in states like California and Arizona, there was no legislative veto. There was no um, uh, chance for people um, uh, with an obvious interest in the outcome to exercise like peremptory challenges. You've got those in several states of the, being able to kick people off the commission that they think um, that they don't want to take their chances with. Mm -hmm. So we had one where it was much more genuinely a, a citizen commission, but there are lots of other formats too. Some states bring in judges or retired judges. Some states um, have uh, politicians on it, but they insist that it be balanced and maybe they'll use the chief justice as a tiebreaker. We can get into some of the other methods, but getting back to what Maryland did, it, it uh, insisted on um, no legislative input really at all, and mm -hmm. no input from uh, anyone who's going to run, uh, no lobbyists, um, uh, no one who had worked too recently for any of these legislative bodies and so forth, a whole bunch of things intended to keep it for citizens, and also the very important partisan specification, and everyone finds they have to do some version of this, which is no majority from a single, uh, a, a registered with a single political party. And indeed, follow, following the problems that Arizona had, we did a three, three, and three system. Uh, three registered Democrats, three registered Republicans, three who had not been registered, either of those, and had not changed registration. Could in principle be a registered Green or Libertarian uh, in practice, 
it, so far it's been just registered independence. I, I and I, I want to I want to just high I want to highlight that for for everyone watching and for everyone listening because it sounds to me like one of the biggest things or, or one of the more important things that you can do when looking to uh, create fair and, and effective redistricting would be to number one have a commission whose role is. Uh, ironclad, so is not necessarily uh, is not subject to the whims of the legislature. Interested parties, number one, and of course, this idea of of balance between the parties, but I think more importantly, balance with independents as well. So they're equally, what what's the word I, I, I should say? So each has an equal say in the in in the vote. Did I hear that correctly? You did. And uh, one more rule that I didn't mention, but that can be important is. Um, to get a recommendation for a map, um, many states, including ours, uh, specify a supermajority. That is not just five of the nine, but six or seven of the nine. And if you go up to a strong seven of the nine, then you're really saying that at least one person uh, from each of the party configurations uh, needs to give their approval. So that reduces the chance that something that's terribly unfair to Democrats, uh, mm -hmm. or for that matter, uh, uh, something where the Democrats and Republicans carve things up. I call that a buddy mander, where you really do see maps where the, uh, the two major parties have gotten together and uh, carve things up so that everything is safe for one party or the other. But the independents uh, also, you know, would have a reason to object if they you know, <laughs> sense that this is going on, you know, that, that partisanship yeah. is coming back in. Um, so, so that rule of a supermajority needed to approve a map uh, has been found to be pretty wise. I think it, it is the, the rule in a lot of different states, and, and we also adopted that. So so, that, so there's first that question of who decides, yeah. um, uh, and we can talk more about that if you like, but otherwise I'll go on to category yeah. two. Uh, category two is uh, what is specified, uh, and, and there needs to be some specification for what's good districting. And uh, in Maryland, we've got a, if you want to look at it this way, a very plain vanilla uh, set of criteria, uh, compactness, which means uh, the district should be more like squares or circles uh, and less like snakes or praying mattises. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, call us traumatized by the uh, experience of the last couple of maps if you want, but that was front and center with the governor's order, uh, compactness, is to be you know a major 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 filter of what gets through and secondly the uh, respect for the boundaries of smaller political subdivisions counties and municipalities now here's one where it's a little bit harder to speak universally compactness i think is good everywhere respect for county boundaries uh, makes a huge amount of sense in maryland where counties are very very powerful and deliver most government services that are not delivered by the state Counties are not important in New England as much, for example, where the government uh, services tend to be delivered by the municipalities, the towns and cities. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily have exactly the same rule in New England as you would in Maryland. But in our state, where county politics is super important, uh, a lot of the population in major counties like Baltimore County and, and uh uh, Howard County, there are no municipalities. Everything is county uh, uh, services. So, uh, so respecting the county boundaries and also municipal boundaries was another big part of our plan. And we did not specify some things that do crop up in many other states. For example, 
one state, Arizona, and I, as far as I know, it's the only one, instructs its commission uh, to try to maximize the number of swing or districts where you don't know who's going to win, districts where the registration of the parties or the voting patterns in the past have been close enough to suggest that it, both parties could put up a real contest. And I'll get in a minute to why we not only didn't put that in, but we kind of went off in the opposite direction, because a lot of people like the idea of competitive districts. And another thing that is done in one or two places, I believe that Ohio has recommended this for its statehouse districts, is um, uh, to uh, mimic the results of proportional representation. And again, you have a lot of people who strongly believe that if a state is 55% Democrat and 45% Republican, then a good map is one where the seats also come out that way. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I can see the logic, but that's not the way that Maryland went. And what we did instead uh, is the way that California and Iowa, uh, to name two states, there may be others, have gone off, which is so-called blinding. And in Maryland, the uh, marching orders of the commission are do not look at or uh, consider in your deliberations the political coloration of any communities. Uh, Don't look at voting registration, Republican versus Democrat versus anything else. Don't look at past voting history because it will tell you uh, which party tends to win. And don't even look, and I, this is one of my favorite rules, I have to confess, don't don't look at the place of residence of any individual, such as an incumbent. Uh, so that keeps us from making sure that anyone lives in, in uh, a, a district that will be good for them. We have to ignore where they live, oh, and challengers and everyone else, of course, too. Um, now, you notice that this is not just different from, but it's inconsistent with those potential decision mechanisms of make districts competitive or make districts um, uh, proportionally representational, we can't do that because we're not allowed to look at the data that would let us do that. Yeah. And there's there are two things that were that were left out that I want your opinion on and and, and something I've heard in past uh, past episodes as well, which is two of the aspects that sometimes challenge the idea of compactness and even contiguity for that matter or 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 semblance of contiguity is you know number one the concept of communities of interest so for example keeping a rural block together uh, rather than splitting them in two and potentially diluting their voting power the second would be preserving the minority vote or the power of the minority vote as well. Um, and, you know, we saw this in North Carolina, where uh, I think it was actually the Republican Party that challenged the redistricting map uh, on, on the grounds of it violating the Voting Rights Act because um, it uh, diluted, in their opinion, the vote of the, the African-American vote there. What, what, what are your comments on, on that, on, on those two well, that, uh, aspects? Those are two very different questions because the Voting Rights Act means that there's a whole lot of law that has to be followed in the case of minority communities of interest. Mm -hmm. And without the Voting Rights Act, uh, there is no such legal framework on questions like keep farming communities together. So let me take the first one first, which is uh, communities of interest. I am suspicious of the phrase communities of interest because I've seen it be invoked for so many different ways, uh, reasons. Um, and you find as you get into 
the subject that uh, people can present almost any desired map as a combination of communities of interest. We have a notorious example from Maryland where they came up with their intended six district uh, gerrymander and someone said, wait a minute, we need some way to defend this to the public, don't we? And so they thought and thought and they said, oh, well, we'll call this the uh, Interstate 270 commute uh, district because it includes it happens to include Interstate 270 all the way out to uh -huh. from, uh, uh, the, you know, the farthest western part of the state. Yeah, uh, those people ever want to go into Washington D.C., they have to drive through all the rest of the district. So we're going to call it that. And uh, the Supreme Court actually laughed at this when it wound up being part of the oral argument because it was so obviously a back formation, as uh, they might say in linguistics. It was, uh, uh, it, it was cobbled together to uh, excuse something they wanted to do for other reasons, and even they didn't quite believe it. Uh, and you find similarly, uh, keeping farming districts together uh, was a helpful excuse for a gerrymander uh, uh, in one instance because those districts all voted Republican and they wanted to pack the Republicans. Uh, in another instance, it wasn't convenient for their uh, wish to break up farming districts, none of which would have their own uh, representative. And so they went in completely the opposite direction mm -hmm. and ignored uh, the case for keeping farming districts together. Mm -hmm. Same crowd, same year, uh, you know, but again, uh, what emerged as um, communities of interest was purely tactical. And mm -hmm. so I I acknowledge that there is something to it in that there really are communities that feel that they are historically and practically and in other ways um, uh, together with other uh, communities, even if it sprawls across a county line or a municipal line, uh, they will tell people, oh, welcome to you know such and such bill, and it will happen to sprawl across a line. And I believe that it's okay and desirable to respect that. When people yeah. talk about a um, community that they feel they live in, it's good to listen um, to that part of it. And so the I think the testimony that our commissions have heard and will hear uh, welcome people talking about um, and, and just as good districting takes into account things like mountain ranges, do you live east or west of mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the mountain range, uh, uh, which sometimes means that you depart from compactness? Because if you, if you apply compactness to a map in a place like Oregon, you find sometimes that you are uh, <coughs> forcing a couple of east of the Rockies communities together with um, uh, people that they are not anything other than as the crow flies yeah. backed with. And yeah. so you, you, you need some recognition that genuine connection by being able to drive someplace. This also happens in Maryland with the Chesapeake Bay because you apply a mechanical algorithm of compactness and before long you put some people on the west side of the Chesapeake Bay, uh, you force them into a district with the Eastern Shore, whether or not there's any easy way for them to get there. So. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting back to communities of interest. Um, uh, yes, they have a role, but I just don't want it to be a blank check. Yeah, that that makes sense. And also, I, it seems to me like with the standards that you have set up, like so compactness, uh, having a balanced commission, and having there be a requirement that they come in blind uh, to uh, at least very detailed data on the districts they're carving, it sounds like there's then room to open up a conversation about why 
uh, an exception might be made for a community of interest without it just being an excuse or a way to reverse engineer a reason it, for some disaster of a district to be carved. And, and I like to think that it will emerge in the public hearing record. Yeah. Um, certainly, some counties feel some fellow feeling with others. They, uh, you know, they're part of um, historically uh, recognized sections of the state, and they uh, they see a logic in in uh, combining counties that have had that kind of uh, uh, kinship. But the um, let me move over to the other set of issues regarding uh, race and redistricting, because yeah. there you have uh, the Federal Voting Rights Act and the um, constitutional provisions on which it's based to, uh, to, to implement. And um, so it's no longer a matter of the states choosing from any of the different possibilities. Some of the possibilities are required and others are forbidden by the Voting Rights Act. However, that still leaves a lot that is uh, both discretionary and sometimes that legally simply has not been settled yet. And I'll offer one example. Um, most Voting Rights Act litigation has um, involved a uh, single discrete identifiable minority, uh, African Americans, or in some cases, Hispanics. Maryland, as one of the most ethnically varied states in the United States, uh, we have uh, some of the most polyglot communities uh, uh, other than Queens, New York, I think uh, a couple of the other top five communities as far as having multiple uh, language origins and things like that are in the state of Maryland. And uh, so that raises uh, front and center the question of does the Voting Rights Act have anything to say uh, for or against for uh, so-called majority minority districts where no single minority group is necessarily politically going to be calling the tune. Um, it's easy to construct in Maryland um, districts in which between um, uh, white Anglos, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asian-Americans, you have something like you know one quarter of each uh, because Maryland has uh, you know st strong ethnic uh, concentrations of that sort. So um, it will be interesting to consider uh, and there is, so far as I can tell, and again, I'm, I'm not going to be able to jump the gun on issues that we have to decide as a commission and, and with all of us weighing in. But, but so far as I know, there is no orthodoxy about how that um, uh, should be approached. We, you know, we will listen. We will see who people um, feel uh, is, uh, you know, one community over that, you know, they, they see the logic uh, you know, to, to what extent is jumping a county, county boundary going to make sense and, and to what extent not. Okay. Okay. Now, one of the things that the conversation around gerrymandering often centers on is, or I should say the thing the conversation around gerrymandering typically centers on are, are federal districts. Um, one of the things I've, I've learned again, as I've explored is that it's equally important at the state level as well, because very often, again, depending on which state you live in, that legislature may be responsible for carving the federal districts. So it kind of feeds up. Is your commission also looking at the state level, at the General Assembly in Maryland, or is that the purview of some? We, some we are power? charged with drawing maps for both U.S. House and for uh, the Maryland upper and lower houses in, in Minneapolis. And it is indeed tremendously important the uh, 
the two are on slightly different tracks in Maryland as in many states. Uh, as you can imagine, the legislature takes extra special care of the rules for its own districts in some ways. And yet the Maryland constitution gives them slightly different treatment and actually um, gives the courts a little more role of being able to supervise the drawing of the electoral districts. And for that reason, the gerrymandering practices, although there has certainly been some bad gerrymandering of statehouse districts, it hasn't been quite as outrageous because of that fear of courts stepping in and um, correcting things. The, basically, the Maryland Constitution provides no grounds whatsoever for courts to strike down the U.S. House districts mm-hmm. as overly gerrymandered. So they basically can, it's a world of sheer imagination, as some cartoon company once put it. Um, you know, they can, they can really do anything practically with, with the U.S. House districts. Uh, uh, they, they have to be a little more careful, and they are a little more careful with the uh, state house. Okay, understood. I want to I want to pivot a little bit because one of the things I found really interesting as I was reading up on you know your work and and your bio as well is that your, your partisan journey, if you want to call it that, is very similar to mine. And I I bring this up every now and then on this this uh, show where you know I I was a uh, I was born and raised a, a Republican or a Massachusetts Republican. Uh, which now is probably functionally a, a Democrat by in some circles, but um, but I, you know I was born and raised uh, in a in a, with a conservative uh, upbringing uh, or conservative at the time, and uh, and and you know my deviation from the party came during the Bush administration, and and it came for many of the same reasons uh, that that well I I don't want to I don't want to steal your thunder here, but it, it really seemed to mimic a lot of the things you were thinking too. And I, I, wa- I want to bring this up where I promise everyone we're going to get back to gerrymandering. This leads back there. But I'd just like you to describe that because you actually started out campaigning for George W. Bush in 2000, correct? I did. And it is a long story, like so many people's political stories. I've always been identified as a small L libertarian, as is the Cato Institute. And the and that means that Republican candidates um, are never going to be entirely satisfactory, uh, but depending on what their issues are, depending on what their approach to the use of government force is, uh, they may be uh, pretty good or they may, uh, uh, while, while my, uh, 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 you know, sense of, 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 of something being wrong. And the, um, with George W. Bush, uh, I was deeply involved with a career that, I, with a um, topic that I spent much of my career on, which is uh, problems of excessive litigation and mm-hmm. the um, uh, reining in uh, uh, excessive uh, litigation. Now, it happened that George W. Bush was the president who took an interest in this topic okay. uh, beyond any other, along with uh, mm-hmm. Vice President uh, Dan Quayle, um, really made it. Uh, his own kind of crusade, which meant that as the uh, as someone who had written several books in that area, I was thrilled and honored that he wanted to uh, draw on my work. Um, I uh, flew out to Austin, um, was happy to uh, give them, uh, you know, my my best advice about uh, what the proper role for the federal government is, because of course a lot of this stuff is not appropriately addressed at the federal level, but rather at the state level. Yeah, uh, but. 
give them my most honest advice. And it was thrilling to see uh, that uh, they would sometimes um, nod to themes that I uh, had uh, laid out as, as, as the right ones. Uh, but of course, a president's time in office is not just about your favorite issue. Yeah, people need to learn yeah. that hearing very welcome things about your favorite issue is not the be all and end all of what presidents should be. And at the mm -hmm. same time, he was, um, you know, he was being talked into, and I don't know whether this is the real him or not, but he was being talked into campaigning that I thought was very demagogic uh, against the aspirations of gay people, for example, where he locked himself into some positions that I found very, very objectionable. Uh, uh, Republicans in general were not covering themselves in glory in those days on those issues. Yeah, I hope that you know we can look back and say they got over some of those things, but at the time they were misbehaving pretty badly and uh, George W. Bush was encouraging them to misbehave. So I just sort of checked out and said, uh, you know, I've I've had the chance, which I value greatly, to be listened to carefully on issues that I think are, you know, a part of what I have to contribute to the world. Uh, but I don't have to vote for every Republican who comes along, and I can hold out for ones that I like better, uh, or vote third party. And the and this, you know, some of these same things came up with a very different configuration of issues when the Republicans decided to nominate uh, Donald Trump, someone I find completely unacceptable and would never vote for. Um, you know, there is the Libertarian Party. Uh, you know, I, I love them dearly. I don't always vote for uh, the Libertarians just because I'm a small all Libertarian. But when they've got Gary Johnson, uh, someone who uh, actually was quite a decent governor of, of New Mexico for two terms, uh, uh, and Bill Weld from Massachusetts, who I also, you know, find very congenial. I, mm -hmm. I really like Bill Weld. So I figured, look, if you're going to be serious, you know, I'm going to go ahead and vote for you. Uh, and, yeah. And, and I went and did, and did. Yeah. I, do you know, so it's funny. I volunteered for Bill Weld's Senate campaign against then Senator John Kerry back in 96. I was a huge fan of Bill Weld. And for those of you who only know him through his, uh, well, his primary challenge to Trump, uh, and prior to that, his running under the libertarian ticket as vice president, you know, Bill Weld was what I would consider your classic Northeast Republican or your classic Northeast conservative, which was fiscally conservative, but very liberal on social issues. And the reason I bring this up is because over the last two decades, there has been an extinction of or there's been a great diminishment of what I'll call, you know, the Bill Weld Republicans out there. And so, for example, you have Charlie Baker, the governor here in Massachusetts. I think you could consider Larry Hogan, governor of Very Maryland. So. Yeah, um, you could, go on. Sorry. Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan uh, have a great deal in common. And I watch with interest as Baker simultaneously is extraordinarily popular in the polls generally in Massachusetts, but struggles to get renominated by his own Massachusetts Republican Party, which has veered so far that it's not clear that this super popular governor, you know, next time, I mean, he, he managed to get it for re-election, but, it, you know, were time to go on, who knows whether he could even hold the nomination of, of the splinter of the Massachusetts Republican Party that is left. Yeah, I can I, I can speak freely because I am not affiliated with the Massachusetts Republican Party. <sighs> they they cannot get out of their own way. And 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 
if you are truly the free market party, right? The market's telling you what they want. You have a you have a state that is overwhelmingly Democratic voting for a Republican governor. You can't get better. Um, but part of the part of the reason I ask you this is because you know again we're we're maybe not talking Maryland but talking general. There the there the one of the things I've I've learned and one of the things I've I've heard as I've talked to people who are experts in the subject politic or the subject politic uh, specifically of, of political polarity is that very often gerrymandering can aggravate this situation and i wonder if if you feel that generally the state of redistricting again nationwide somehow influences this move to the extremes and somehow ma makes it so you don't have room for like a charlie baker in the republican party because the moderates just aren't present in government. I think there's a common sense link there that I agree with. And I, let me try to do justice to both sides, because I also think that one shouldn't oversell gerrymandering as a reason for the terrible national polarization. Sure. It would still be there even without gerrymandering. Yeah. But let me take the, the side that you were talking about first, because I largely agree with it. And I see it in action in Maryland, uh, in which the, uh, you know, a, a truly professionally done gerrymander, you can predict which party will win every single seat. And mm -hmm. that is accomplished by having the party that is in control have somewhat smaller majorities than it may feel entirely comfortable with, but still uh, enough majorities that it will be the majority party primary that decides. And then in order to make that happen, they push the minority party into highly concentrated uh, super packed districts. Uh, now, if you look at the states where Republicans have drawn the gerrymander, um, and uh, there is an interaction here with the Voting Rights Act in that the um, very often in Southern states, Texas, North Carolina, uh, uh, Alabama, uh, it's hard to tell the difference between packed minority districts, which are um, advertising their super compliance with the Voting Rights Act, you know, hey, look here, we're, you know, we've got a district that is absolutely certain to be carried by an African-American. Well, it's awfully convenient for the Republicans who mm -hmm. are gerrymandering those same states yep. to have taken the most loyal Democratic voters and packed them into a, a very few districts. So you wind up in many of these states, uh, the Democrats who do come from Texas um, are not uh, the types of Democrats who could ever uh, uh, with, with perhaps a few exceptions like Beto O'Rourke, but most of them are not going to win a Texas statewide race because uh, they're not really centrist Democrats. They are instead having to worry about primaries in districts that are super, super Democratic. Yeah. And likewise, in Maryland, we have one Republican district, uh, which by Maryland standards is super, super Republican. And so um, it's the Republican primary that has dictated who has won that. And if you go down to the statehouse level, you see a lot of that too, where it's yeah. um, uh, the parties are polarized because you either have a sure democratic district, in which case you uh, have to worry about being primaried from the left, or you have a sure Republican district, in which case the worry is to be primaried from the right. And so you have uh, legislators who set out their somewhat performative public stances of being super liberals or super conservatives because their real worry is being primaried yeah. uh, from a more extreme part of their own party. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's the case for, yes, it's a genuine part of the problem. I will point out that you look at the U.S. Senate, which were obviously gerrymandering plays no role, mm -hmm. and you do see the same polarization, no gerrymandering, and yet uh, Susan Collins hangs on as the only 
uh, New England Republican who has left. Uh, mm -hmm. The Democrats who used to do very, very well in rural and Republican states used to be not thought of as strange at all that George McGovern came from South Dakota, which then was also a, a largely Republican state. The Democrats would do well because they figured out the formulas. Um, and politics has become nationalized. That's part of what's going on. Uh, so that uh, rather than simply thinking, hey, we know George McGovern or Frank Church from Idaho or uh, the, the many Democrats who used to do well, uh, now they think national issues got to get our national party configuration one more vote. Uh, and that one more vote is more important than, wait a minute, I know this person. He's actually not, you know, kind of reasonable. That's what it's funny. That's what we talked about in the last episode is that if you try to run as a Democrat, for example, in uh, a more solid Republican uh, area, you end up running against Nancy Pelosi. And uh, and of yeah. course, Susan Collins was was uh, was effectively running against Mitch McConnell's reputation up in Maine. And I I was there during the election. They, oh, I, yeah. heard, I heard the ads. So and I wrote a piece uh, back in, I guess it was 2015. Uh, because I'm fascinated by Northeastern Republicans, I wrote a whole magazine piece uh, about them. And okay. I said the, uh, and, and I talked about Weld and I talked about, uh, I guess Baker was new then, uh, but um, many of these people. Um, and the, um, the basic um, syndrome is that they can get themselves elected governor um, because uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of registered Democrats will recognize, you know, we need the broom to sweep clean. We need someone who hasn't bought into all the deals uh, in uh, Boston State House or the Annapolis State House. Uh, you know, sure, elect them as governor because they, uh, you know, Massachusetts politics is th three people in a room. And, uh, you know, at least this way, one of them won't be a Democrat. And um, the, but then, uh, they ca they have nowhere to go. Uh, they can't get into the U.S. Senate. Uh, and again, you saw this with Weld. Uh, I'm not going to speak anything about what would ha happen. Uh, but, you know, Larry Hogan, some of these ideas have to be going through his head, which is the very same people who are delighted to vote for him for governor. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole race would be nationalized and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it would be, uh, you know, what exactly do you think of Trump? Well, you know, Larry's made pretty clear that he didn't vote for Trump. Uh, yeah. But it, that wouldn't be good enough. Just as with Susan Collins, you know, there would be massive guns uh, brought to bear to nationalize uh, anything. So you have you have this dilemma. It's it's still possible to have the governorships. And again, you do see some of the mirror image of that in that in some Republican states. Although this is getting rarer and rarer, but at least until a few years ago, Democrats were pretty good at picking off governorships in places like Montana, mm -hmm. um, uh, because those races were not being nationalized. Again, uh, the, the trend uh, the trend is very scary because the trend is toward nationalizing, you know, things way down to, you know, city council. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could we could go on for hours about that. That's a that's a huge. Uh, and again, to to just bring the listeners into the conversation too. If you've listened to the past couple of episodes, you know, you know, gerrymandering is part of the problem. But like you said, there's the nationalization of of elections. There's I see, and I, I won't tell stories that get too local because I don't want them to come back and haunt me. But yeah. I have seen people saying um, no one should get a nomination for county council uh, who isn't uh, with, uh, uh, you know, that, that 
uh, on the right side of, of Trump versus anti-Trump. And I was, you know, come on, you know, and, th and this affects party primaries too. Uh, uh, and likewise, the, you, know, you see some of this in the Democratic Party with the uh, squad, you know, successfully primarying various old line Democrats. And I see that sifting down to uh, the county and municipal level on the Democratic side too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know I, I have one more question for you, which is, you know, at the end of every episode, I always like to give people some way they can take action. So if I'm sitting, if I'm listening to you talk and I, I want to tackle the issue of redistricting and I want to tackle the issue of gerrymandering in my state, are there things me as the lowly individual voter can do to positively affect the situation? Yeah, assuming you're not a map nerd, in which case I would say go ahead and submit some sample maps. Okay. But that, that, that's a specialty taste, obviously. Yeah. Um, for the rest of us, if you're lucky enough to live in a state that lets uh, regular citizens on into the process in some way, it, Michigan, Virginia are states that just came into that category, by all means apply because uh, you might get picked. And in fact, one of the ways that I advise um, trying to be more active in general is that you will find that county and state government have all sorts of advisory commissions, not on this issue necessarily. Um, it's an amazing way of getting some mileage figuring out how these governments work. And once you've been on one commission, they may invite you, hey, hey why not apply to, to, to more? Uh, they love having registered independents for a lot of these. Uh, because of this party balance issue, they, they love to be able to point to some diversification that way. So, so think about that. It can be hard, given that uh, in the gerrymandered states, lawmakers clutch this to their bosom. It's like Gollum and the Precious. I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> disrespectful, but uh, yeah. you know, th this is for many of them the, the ring of power of re-election, and yeah. they relinquish it very easily. But um, if you educate yourself about um, where uh, the uh, most uh, embarrassing parts of your uh, state's gerrymander are, and they may not be obvious, but things that were done to protect someone. Um, and you just write letters to the editor. For example, let me talk about a, a very successful format for a letter to the editor. In Maryland, when we began digging into the maps, we began seeing the fingers, as I call them. And those are little peninsulas of land that were meant to include someone's residence who they wanted to, to run in the district or to exclude someone's residence because they were afraid of that they would win if they would run in their own home district. Um, so I have seen wonderful letters to the editor that simply and sweetly, without having to raise their voice to get into our theme and without <laughs> having to accuse anyone of much of anything, say, uh, have you noticed in the map of our own county that uh, the district map extends uh, you know, five miles unnecessarily out of the way here? Did you know that that was done uh, because they had a grudge against that person uh, and wanted to make sure that they wouldn't be uh, uh, in uh, the legislature. Well, I can guarantee that even without an action point, the guilty parties in the gerrymander hate seeing letters like that. They mm. hate seeing a spotlight on the details. Another of my favorite stories, which I haven't seen in a letter to the editor, but it would make a great one, is that if you look at a different part of the gerrymandered statehouse districts uh, in Baltimore County, you see that they ran the lines around individual buildings in order to try to defeat, defeat the person 
uh, who was an incumbent that they wanted to defeat. Uh, and, uh, you know, people hear those stories and it gets them interested at a local level. Uh, you know, you might reach one or two people who then become the next letter writers. And that's how a lot of these issues are advanced is by having uh, people who are dedicated to reminding the public, by the way, you haven't fixed this injustice yet. I wrote an I wrote a letter a year ago and here I am back writing about a different ang angle of the same problem because it hasn't been fixed yet. Yeah, I would. So if I'm going to summarize that, I think number one, math nerds, we need you. Number one, first and foremost. Number two, for the rest of you, just be a pain in the ass, you know, <laughs> like any way and you can. A, a well-informed one because no one. Oh, if, yes, yes. Thank you. The, the poorly informed person uh, raising their voice, but people uh, will. It, when people see details, when people see street names or town names in the letter to the editor, oh, their, their eye is drawn to it, especially if it's their town. Yes. So again, to to maybe couch that for folks, think of like the A student going and contesting their A minus grade to the teacher. That's the tone we want. Does that sound yes. about right? Yes, respectful and having the details all in a row. All right, perfect, perfect. I think we'll cap it off there. Walter, thank you very much for joining thank me. You. This has been really, uh, really fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, man. As always, if you like this episode, please share it and consider leaving a kind review and if you have not subscribed yet, consider this your invitation to do thusly. Now, as Walter said, there is no one-size-fits-all solution to carving congressional districts. States need the flexibility to determine how the district lines are best drawn, as every state functions differently. But there are some aspects that could be universally applied, such as having nonpartisan citizens commissions to keep the job of redistricting out of the hands of those who'd be elected in those districts. Now, one other note, there are a number of ways we can participate at the most local level, such as taking part in public hearings and submitting our own maps. And don't be afraid to take one small action at the local level because there is still power there, believe it or not. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is normally produced in North Carolina by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Let's hope to God he comes back soon. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.